Hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast presented by the California State Railroad Museum. A couple weeks ago, we did a podcast with Dr. Julia Lee, looking at um, her newest book called The Racial Railroad, which explored why the railroad is used so often in stories about race. And we all thought that was a really interesting conversation that we had, and we wanted to explore how the railroad is used in other forms of literature. And the one that immediately came to our mind was how the railroad is used in kids' books. We all remember Thomas the Tank Engine and and the Hogwarts Express and the Polar Express and things like that. So what is it about the railroad that makes it so common and so useful in children's stories? So for this podcast, it's exactly what we're going to explore. We're going to explore why and how railroads are used in stories for kids. For this podcast, we have two different interviews for you. The first is with Lev Grossman, the author of The Silver Arrow and The Golden Swift. Uh, Great books about a magic railroad, so that's pretty cool. And our next interview is with Sam Sedgman, the author of Adventure on Trains series. Uh, Both these are best-selling works that uh, are great examples of how the railroad is used in children's books. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started with our interview with Lev Grossman. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, well, maybe we can just jump into um, a quick sort of synopsis of the book a little bit without giving away too many spoilers uh, for everybody. Uh, so it involves trains, magic, talking animals, adventure, uh, all that good stuff in a kid's book. Um, so maybe we can just start off with how do Kate and Tom, our, our main characters here, um, get into a flying train? Um, well, it happens quick. Uh, I find these days with children's books, you can't you, you can't dance around for too long. You got to get right into it. Uh, and in this case, what happens is that um, Kate, who's eleven, her uncle, um, his name is Herbert, uh, who is mysterious and wealthy, um, gives her a uh, a steam locomotive for her birthday, um, and. Uh, there you have it. It's there. They <laughs> park it in the backyard on some, you know, on some on a little stub of track. And um, uh, I think at first she's uh, somewhat taken aback. A little, it's a little overwhelming. Uh, one of the things I liked about um, uh, writing about a train, and in particular a steam train, is um, how uh, um, vexing and kind of uh, hard to understand the controls are. Um, I like the fact that, you know, you don't sit there and there's no steering wheel, there's no um, video screen. Uh, when you step in the cab of a, of a steam train, um, uh, you don't know what you're looking at uh, if you're, you know, if you're a kid. It's not what you expect. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, it's as you mentioned, it's that sort of uh, removal of our of all modern technology. Um, it's something they're not used to. It's not, you know, steering wheel brake pedal gas pedal all that sort of stuff uh one thing i liked about it too is you have like a little bit of a tension between um the parents not being totally on board with suddenly having this really big train and that's sort of perfect for you know you're 11 year old you're starting to sort of rebel a little bit you're not quite all the way to teenagehood where you're going to have the full rebellion but it is that sort of like i'm going to have a difference of opinion for my parents she's at that in-between stage and she's sort of like she gets 
this train from her uncle. She's like, I don't even know if I want this or what this is. And then her parents like, you can't have this. We're taking it away. And immediately she's like, don't you touch my train. (laughs) (laughs) Because no matter what it is, if her parents are going to take it away, that's not okay. Suddenly, you know, she wants it. Even though she doesn't really know why. And it takes her a while to figure out what is sort of special about it. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that it's this combination. So it's not just that, you know, she goes on a train adventure. It's that it's a, it's a magic train adventure. Um, you know, the train's flying, it's going all these different cool places. Um, what, was there any reasoning behind co- sort of combining those two things is it as simple as like kids love magic, kids love trains. Why not put them together? Well, I love magic. Um, <laughs> I'm a little addicted to it as a writer. I can't, I can't quite leave it alone. So, you know, in, in some respects, there are respects in which the Silver Arrow as a train is somewhat grounded. Um, you know, it, uh, it, uh, it has this, you know, it's the controls are regular steam engine controls. Um, uh, it's hard to work it. They need to learn how to operate this incredibly huge, complex piece of machinery. Um, uh, and then at the same time, uh, it goes places that an ordinary train couldn't go. Um, uh, and also it talks, which as I understand it, ordinary trains do not do. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's such like a good combination because I was thinking about it, you know, we, I, so not only do I do the podcast, but I also do a lot of our field trip programs. Yeah. I always have kids ask questions at the end and we sort of see uh, what they look like when they first see their you know, steam locomotives and that sort of thing. And we often get things, you know, sort of their, their emotion when they see a steam locomotive is sort of similar to when they're like thinking about magic. Cause as you said, that it's that removal of modern technology and it's just this sort of wondrous object. It's really pretty. Usually sometimes it's a little dirty, but usually at least if it's in the museum, it's, it's nice and cleaned. Um, and then sometimes the, the questions they ask make me think of, uh, questions they would have about magic, the logistics of it. Um, they, they do ask us, has there ever been one that's gone over the ocean? Can trains fly? Things like that, that your book sort of, it has the train do, which is really neat. Yeah, well, they belong to this wonderful, I think what we will in retrospect look to look at as in, in between uh, uh, technological era, <clears throat> whereas, you know, they are vast engines, uh, um, you know, made of metal that perform incredible feats. And yet they are all completely pre-digital and pre-computerized. They run purely on uh, in an analog way, you know, based on the principles of um, uh, uh, mechanical physics. Uh, you know, there isn't this thing of um, uh, something's going on in a little chip. Uh, there's something, you know, incredibly... Uh, uh, powerful uh, and at the same time kind of wonderfully elegant about them, um, which has a kind of aura, not like, like anything that is made nowadays or that was made, you know, prior to, I don't know, 1800 or whenever. Um, and another thing that you're, uh, especially, I think it's a, it's even more so in the second book, um, you focus a bit on climate change. So they're rescuing these animals. Um, and one of the reasons they're rescuing these animals is because of the impacts on climate change. Um, what was sort of the, the, um, the reasoning on putting that in the book? Well, it's, you know, it's funny. I didn't, I wasn't particularly intending to write a book about, um, I didn't want to write a political book or, uh, even, you know, an environmentalist book. 
Um, what I really wanted to do was write a book that I, um, kind of a, you know, like a roll doll kind of book, like one of those magical adventures that he does, like James and the Giant Peach or whatever, except instead of a giant peach, he would have a large talking steam engine. Um, and, uh, you know, what's, and it, it draws very much on, uh, on that, on the Narnia books, which were a big inspiration for me. Um, and what sort of started to happen was basically, you know, since those books were written 70, 80 years ago, our relationship to the natural world has changed so much so that, you know, if you um, are a talking animal and the human beings show up back in the day, you'd think, oh, well, thank, thank God the humans are here because now they're finally going to save the day. Now, when the humans show up, well, the kind of humans kind of have a lot of explaining to do because a lot of what is challenging to animals now, I feel like comes from human beings and if animals could talk, they would have some things to say about um, what was going on. Um, uh, so it started to become about that a little bit. Um, and we are, you know, in this time when, you know, one of the um, knock on effects of, of climate change is uh, just as humans are often di di displaced and refugees, animals are to a, greater, uh, a much greater extent than they ever happened before. They're being driven out of their customary environments and kind of climatic zones. Um, their uh, migration patterns are being disrupted. Um, uh, their habitats are being destroyed. So everybody is kind of out of place and being shuffled around. Uh, and uh, something was appealing to me about uh, the idea of putting that on rails and looking at that as a way of, uh, as a fun uh, 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 metaphor for um, the kind of um, challenges that, uh, uh, that are, are, are facing the natural world. Yeah, and I think I think it's really interesting too that it is a steam locomotive that is going and saving the day, right? Because it is that sort of like, yeah, humans have to come in and sort of explain themselves, especially like a steam locomotive, which is traditionally uh, anti-environmentalist type thing. Right, <laughs> right. It's true. It's not the greenest transportation, um, <laughs> much as I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And even though today, you know, trains are non-steam trains at least are very environmentally friendly um outside of the book series are you like a train guy is this a, a love you've had for a long time is this something you developed while writing the book you know i'm, always, I'm not a train fanatic like one thing i discovered rapidly is that if you think you know anything about trains you can go on the internet and immediately find <laughs> there are people who know a lot more than i do about trains um but uh, I've always been sensible to the romance of them. Um, when I was a kid, uh, uh, like a lot of kids, I, uh, I really loved those T.S. Eliot poems that got turned into Cats, um, a musical that I still have not seen. Um, but there's one about, about a, tra a, a, a railway cat, Skimbleshanks, and Skimbleshanks um, rides on the train, uh, and it's sort of the overnight train with the sleeper cars. Uh, and I always found that, um, uh, you know the sort of um, uh, uh, the the kind of coziness of it. Well, it's weird. I mean, it's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing for a writer because trains have that coziness. They have that wonderful interior where you feel very safe uh, and protected. And at the same time, uh, and you can sort of explore this all these fascinating things going on in there. And then at the same time, you are moving through this landscape, uh, which you um, can also explore. Uh, anyway, I was very fond of Skimbleshanks. Much, much later in my life, I 
actually took a sleeper car uh, uh, journey um, and found it much harder to sleep than I expected. <laughs> I took the night train from London to um, Penzance in uh, Cornwall. Um, and uh, I found it very interesting being on a sleeper car, but I do not think that I slept at all. Um, uh, <laughs> on that trip, um, which I then tried the one from Glasgow to London. Um, and I also, uh, again, kind of wonderful, um, but uh, I did not sleep very much. Um, so I've, I've always been uh, drawn to trains, uh, you know, they, that incredible romance of them. Um, uh, uh, I, I don't have any, um, uh, I don't have any very impressive technical knowledge of them. Um, but if there is ever a steam train or a, uh, a, or a railroad museum, you know, anywhere within a hundred miles of me, I will drag my family to it um, because there's sort of, there's nothing else like it. Uh, um, I'm a friend, I'm friendly with um, the writer, uh, George R. R. Martin, who is best known for the Game of Thrones books. Um, he is a train fanatic. Um, wow. and, uh, he um, lives in Santa Fe and they were, I guess, decommissioning an old kind of railway network there. Um, which was not going to stand for George. And so he simply bought it because he has so much money. Uh, he and a few other guys there, and they kind of refitted the whole, uh, a couple of the trains and painted dragons on them and wolves and things like that. And now they run them back and forth uh, between Santa Fe and um, a nearby town. Uh, uh, they are not steam trains. They are diesel. Uh, but uh, George and I were still able to bond over... Um, uh, bond over that and one day if i am ever as successful a writer as george maybe i will do the same thing although i have <laughs> i have a ways to go before i get there yeah no, that's great i i hadn't heard of that the like game of thrones styled diesel trains uh i'll have to check that out that's really yeah cool. it's um it's uh i've been on them it's um it's it's a it's an experience um so so another thing in in your book that i thought was really interesting is this idea that uh, the train not only talks, but has a personality, all that good stuff. Uh, how do you come up with a personality for a steam locomotive? I didn't even plan to have the train talk. Um, I imagine it more like sort of chitty chitty bang bang, which is like, you know, something's going on in there. It's thinking it has a personality, but it doesn't actually talk. Um, and then uh, I began to write these scenes in which it was clear the train had something to say um, uh, and that it had... It was quite sarcastic. Um, uh, its personality is based on my oldest child, who is now 18 and has that teenager extreme irony, contempt and sarcasm thing, uh, which I didn't realize where that was coming from uh, when the train was talking. And then I was like, oh, that's right. It's Ross, obviously. Uh, uh, but it kind of it, it, it sort of it, it materialized uh, 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 kind of out of thin air. But I, I, I sense that there was something uh, uh, there's some sort of pathos to trains in that they are so enormous and powerful and they encase you um, and they are, uh, uh, they are, you know, just massive, um, uh, uh, these sort of snorting beasts. And at the same time, they need a human being kind of to take care of them um, and uh, make sure they're doing okay and polish them and, you know, feed them and things like that. Um, so I like that that mix of, the, of their great power and also their um, need to be taken care of. They're sort of like these gigantic babies. Um, uh, I don't know, I found that appealing and it kind of, I think it came out a little bit in the personality of the train. I think I tried to think about what it would feel like to be a train and that's where I ended up. If, if, um, 
If you had to pick an actor or actress to, pl- to voice this character, do you have any ideas? Like, what, what, what would the voice of a steam train be? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, uh, uh, it's, a cha- it's a challenging role. Um, uh, I, um, and I deliberately didn't give, in the first book, The Silver Arrow, it doesn't, I, didn't, I deliberately didn't give it a voice. It, it just sort of prints out um, uh, statements uh, now and again. Um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, uh, um, uh, in those in the Iron Man movies, Robert Downey Jr. He's got his his he's got the software of his suit and it has a voice. Um, I can't Jarvis. Remember. Yeah, I don't know who the but, actor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Paul Bettany. Um, uh, I I feel like Paul Bettany would do well uh, with that. Um, uh, you know, somebody like that who who, um, uh, who uh, has a a very even keel, but then a kind of there's some slight there's a little irony around the edge, um, you know, that you can always hear. All right. Well, uh, so your your uh, latest book just came out on this. It was uh, earlier this month on May 2nd or 3rd, I believe. Um, is there going to be another book? Is this a, like a where, where is the series going next? I guess. Well, I, there's, there's certainly going to be at least one more. Um, uh, I feel like two books. It's not really enough. <laughs> Feels a little short. Um, I, I'll, uh, there's there's going to be one more, and also this one. It's a little darker than the first one, and has that slightly Empire Strikes Back feel about it. I feel like there needs to be a third one to kind of um, round it out. Um, so uh, yeah, it's in the works. Um, uh, it's been pointed out that the first one is silver and the second one is gold, and mm. I'm running short of precious metals um, to name it. <laughs> so uh, I'm not quite sure where the title's going to go, but um, there will be at least one more. Perfect. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have. But thank you so much for for joining us. Um, It is my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lev, for that interview. Uh, To dive further into these topics, we're going to come back in just a moment here and have an interview with Sam Sedgman, the author of the Adventures on Trains series. But before we jump into that interview, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. California State Parks is happy to announce its new Adventure Pass program. This program gets fourth graders and their families into 19 state parks, free of charge, until August 30th, 2022. And that includes the California State Railroad Museum. To sign up for the pass, visit reservecalifornia.com. All right, well, I'm sitting here with Sam Sedgman, author of the Adventure on Trains series. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Sam. I guess we can just dive right into it. And one thing I was most curious about looking over your uh, book list here is, ha- have you been on all these trains? There's so many different vibrant places that this train series goes. Even yeah, so people always ask me and my writing partner, MG Leonard, do you go on all the trains that you write about? And my goodness, no, I'm not that rich. Um, I would love to sorely go on um, all of the train journeys that we write about. Uh, but I mean, the, the South African book that you mentioned is inspired by this incredible luxury train uh, service called Ravos Rail, which is several thousand pounds a ticket. Um, and that's not quite within my price range. But I have been able to go on some of the journeys uh, myself uh, and Maya too. Um, I was fortunate enough to travel for my birthday on the California Zephyr, which was the inspiration for 
for Kidnap on the California Comet, the, the story which is set in America um, and which was nominated for an Edgar Award a few months ago, which was very exciting for us. Um, so yes, I took the California Zephyr from Chicago to San Francisco, three days, two nights, absolutely glorious journey. Um, we also have another novel called Danger at Dead Man's Pass, which is uh, sort of uh, takes, takes place. place. It's a sort of trans-European railway adventure. It's a journey from England all the way to the uh, snowy Harz Mountains in Germany. And uh, we did that journey ourselves. We took the Eurostar through the Channel Tunnel. We took the sleeper train from Paris to Berlin. And then we traveled from Berlin through these regional German trains all the way up to the Brockenbahn, which is this one of the last surviving narrow gauge steam railways in all of Europe, um, which goes up from the town of Wernigrode right to the, the peak of this mountain where there's an abandoned Soviet listening post and lots of um, folk tales about witchcraft, which obviously makes it a fantastically atmospheric place to set a book. So I'm curious, your book series is about adventures on trains. Is there something about trains that make them particularly good for adventure books and for writing a kid's book? Um, could you have a, a, a second series called Adventure on Planes or Adventure in Cars? Uh, or is the setting of trains somehow make the stories different? It's not as easily translatable, I guess. No, sure. I mean, yeah, trains are appealing narratively for the same reason that they're appealing as a mode of transport. They're connected to the ground and you can see the places you're traveling through. Um, I feel like people often ask me, are you gonna, now that you've written adventures on trains, you're gonna write adventures on planes? To which my answer is all the planes would kind of be the same. Like all the journeys would kind of be the same. Obviously you can travel between different places and there are lots of different kinds of plane, but one novel in a plane is a lot like another novel in a plane. That's why, you know, I think Agatha Christie wrote Death in the Clouds and I can't think of another plane-based murder that she did, whereas uh, she had several train-related mysteries in her oeuvre. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like planes, and we've seen this um, when we talk to kids sometimes about what their travel experience has been like in their lives. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they've ridden on a plane before and that's what their mind jumps to nowadays. Uh, but then you ask them to describe some of the things that they saw on that journey. Um, and usually they're still, you know, they're excited to share with you. But usually it's like, you know, I saw some clouds, I saw a sunrise, I saw a sunset. And that's sort of all you get if you're talking about the actual plane uh, ride over there. Um, but now I'm curious, so cars are pretty similar to that. You know, every car, every road trip would have different scenes and different things. Um, but I guess maybe the biggest difference between a train series and like a road trip series would be that once you're on the train, you don't have that agency to just pull the car over and, oh, we found a clue, you know, to, to solve our mystery. Uh, once you're on the train, you're, you're sort of there until at least the next stop. The trains are great because they're a closed system, which is what you're always looking for in mystery writing, right? Where you're kind of disconnected from reality. You have a fixed cast of characters. It's very difficult for people to get on or off without being noticed, but it's kind of its own self-sustaining ecosystem. But there's a lot of color and texture. You can, you can look out the windows. You can think about the characters that you kind of see inside the carriages. You can have lots of different variety within the, the, the interior of your train. You know, we've set 
uh, our first novel, The Highland Falcon Thief, was set on board uh, the last journey of the Royal Steam Train. So we had libraries and, uh, you know, fancy dining cars and royal carriages and things like that, as well as the servants' quarters and, and that kind of thing, all based on real life royal trains. Then, of course, we set um, one on the California Zephyr, which is a big bustling passenger train, double decker, you've got an awful lot of rooms, complicated things, easier for people to go missing, but a very different character, a very different feel, and obviously the landscape is completely different as well. Um, our latest one is set in Australia on a state-of-the-art hydrogen-powered automated train that of course goes out of control and is a sort of runaway train situation, very similar to the movie Speed. Um, and yeah, like because they're all set at different places, we also are able to write about different kinds of train and that gives us a very different sense of character, a very different sense of place, which gives us an awful lot more depth when we're searching for ideas to flesh out the story. Something I thought was really interesting about um, one of your books in particular that talks about hydrogen trains. Um, and this came up in our last interview with Lev Grossman as well, where we see these uh, forms of, of transportation that historically, at least if we're talking about things like steam trains, um, haven't been the most environmentally friendly. Uh, they definitely are today if we talk about like, you know, as in your book, hydrogen trains. Uh, but historically, they really haven't necessarily been that way. Um, so I guess, what, what made you want to write a book that involved the climate? Is it as simple as, you know, that's something that's on everybody's mind as of today? We've seen a lot of development in hydrogen technology recently, and we wanted to do a state-of-the-art train, so we felt like hydrogen was something interesting to talk about, especially as these are stories for kids, and the science behind hydrogen is really interesting. You know, it's a, something you burn, it makes water. I think that's a really interesting chemical reaction that children can understand. Um, and something that really feels tangible to you in a way that a lot of kind of climate science and energy science can be quite complicated. Um, trains definitely are a very environmentally friendly form of travel. I mean, it's much more, uh, much better for emissions if you even to ride a diesel train than it is to, to drive a, to drive a, a petrol powered car. Um, I think, young readers now and also the people responsible for getting books into the hands of young readers now are a lot more conscious of the climate than we were a few generations ago and it's something that people are keen to discuss it's something that i'm keen to talk about as a storyteller but oftentimes when you're writing about the climate crisis it's a real downer so we I've written a book that's kind of about the climate and it's set in Australia, which is at one of the, you know, forefronts of experiencing horrific, um, really sort of awful climate related disasters with forest fires and things like that. We've managed to write basically an action movie uh, set on a runaway train, but it also tells you an awful lot about how, you know, climate science and how emissions work and things like that. Um, and it's very different in character to the other kinds of trains that we've been able to write about. I think a lot of people who like trains are clued into how they are very, a very good alternative form of transport that compared to uh, say short haul air flights. Obviously they're not gonna replace long haul air flights anytime soon, but um, one of the wonderful things that I discovered when researching uh, train travel, especially in Europe, um, there's a wonderful Swedish word that I'm going to mispronounce now called flygskam, which basically means flight shame. 
um, which is the, the, the shame that people have at taking flights when there are other alternative modes of transport and which is responsible for like a huge increase in sleeper train usage in, in Sweden especially. Um, and, you know, all across Europe here, we do have a quite extensive railway network, but the sleeper trains had declined in the last few decades as kind of budget airlines took off. But now in the last five to 10 years, we've seen an awful lot more reinvestment in sleeper train routes and they're really opening up uh, Europe again and people are really looking to them as an alternative as a means to flying and that's a cultural shift that I think we really wanted to to reflect in our in our books um even though you know nothing competes to the the friendliness of the of the steam engine and that wonderful smell of coal dust that you get in your nostrils and that kind of uh that um joyous hoot of the whistle um Unfortunately, you know, we don't run steam trains anymore. Uh, for the most part, we have much more efficient alternatives. And I think it's okay to glamorize that sort of historical side to them because they're not a realistic competitor to much more efficient electric trains, which are very interesting in their own right. Um, that's a terribly rambly answer for you, but um, I, I think trains and the environment go hand in hand. Um, and it's a really interesting topic to unpick, but you have to unpick it in, a, in an interesting and compelling way that's fun and um, something that kids can get their head around and it isn't going to lecture you either. I'm not interested in lecturing people in a story. I'm, I'm here to tell a story and give our readers a good mystery. And if I can include some awesome science about how the world works, whether that's climate or engineering or anything else, um, I think that's all to the good. I think that sort of gets to one thing I'm, I'm particularly interested with this podcast in is like, what is the difference in writing an adult book and a kid's book. Um, obviously, you know, in an adult book, in reference to what you just said, you still want to make sure it's an interesting story. That way you keep readers engaged. Um, but I'm wondering if the fact that it's a kid's book does make that maybe even more important. Yeah. So I, for many years, I was not a children's author and I was not interested in children's books at all. Um, but that kind of came out of, uh, I think, an arrogance and a naivety that children's books were lesser or stupid or not worth spending time with, which is a, 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 an assumption that a lot of people make. Um, but when uh, my uh, uh, co-author and good friend, Maya, M.G. Leonard, um, suggested that we write a series of books together about trains because um, she knew that I was a big fan of trains that I'd never, and that I was a writer, but I'd never written a children's book before, um, I, suddenly realized that I'd been forgetting what was most important to me about writing and also about reading, which is joy, which is fun. Um, and when you write a kid's book, you have license to put joy, fun and entertainment first in your story. Because if a kid is bored, a kid will throw that book away, no questions asked. Um, and I think the lesson I've learned from writing kids books is that adult books could do with learning that lesson. Like, where are the fun books? The number of times I'm reading something and I'm like, this isn't fun. Why am I doing this to myself? I don't like this. Why should I have to struggle to connect with the story that you're trying to tell me? Um, I think reading is fun. You know, there are lots of different ways of telling a very great story that has lots of merit. Um, but I definitely think fun, entertainment and excitement need to be in the top two reasons you're writing it. Otherwise it's gonna be a pretty grim read. Um, and so one of the, not just joy in writing, but joy in reading comes from, for me, taking joy in the world and finding things that are really interesting about the world around us. A lot of children's authors write fantasy. A lot of children's authors write historical fiction. 
they're all great writers. I really applaud them. For me, I'm most interested in discovering things about the world around me now, um, which is why we write these stories. You know, it would be very easy to write sort of a historical uh, series, I think, set on trains, you know, glamorizing the golden age of steam and things like that. Um, but trains now are really having a moment and there's so many different interesting kinds of trains to talk about. There's so many interesting places around the world that you can travel to on trains. And trains are really a vessel for me as a storyteller to explore the world and explore different parts of the world. So, you know, um, our most recent book that we've just finished writing that comes out, uh, comes out in the UK this October is set in Sweden. Uh, on the sleeper train to the Arctic, to the most northerly railway station in Europe. And we have the Northern Lights, we have reindeer, we have the indigenous Sami people, we have lots of exciting chases through the snow. We have incredible things that I can learn about and discover there that are completely different to the, um, the, the subplots we have about animal poaching in South Africa in our, in our third book, Murder on Safari Star, which is set in South Africa and Zimbabwe. So trains, are a great way to allow me to research lots of fun stuff about the world and weave them into stories. Um, because um, often, you know, on a, in a way that's kind of a, a facile answer. It's like, you know, oh, I like to do trains because it lets me talk about lots of different things. But for me, when I research the railways and the trains themselves, uh, me and they often find that, you know, they're really rooted in the place that they come from. Like the story of the railway is often the story of the, the country itself. Often the railway was fundamental to the, to the formation of a nation. I mean, think about the United States of America, that first transcontinental railway was really kind of the first means by which I think you could, you could conceive of the United States as one whole entity you know before that railway came along it would have taken weeks to cross from one side to the other but then it became a matter of a matter of days or hours um and i think without that railway it you know that country would have felt an awful lot more disparate trains really do bind places together and really um give a sense of themselves and that's why when we find ourselves writing about trains we find ourselves writing about place and the people of that place and the culture of that place in a really strong and vivid way that's really inextricable so something we've heard about in uh, a different podcast about why trains are used in stories so much. And in that one, we were talking um, about adult books uh, specifically centered around race, you know, why so many stories about race in the United States involve the railroad. But I'm, I'm wondering if this is also true with um, stories uh, for kids um, involving trains. And what we came to the conclusion of there was that one of the most important parts about trains in a in a story is the fact that it's so easily narrativized. You get on the train, and that's the beginning. Things happen on board that train, and the characters can't leave. As you talked about earlier, it's a closed ecosystem. Um, and then, when the train ends, when you when the final stop or whatever stop you happen to be getting off at, that sort of is the conclusion of your story. Um, and it, it sort of just check marks all the beginning, middle, and end bits to it. Um, does that sound like something that comes up in your work as well? Is that sort of the basis of these stories? Yes, it does. Um, tra oh, trains are such good vehicles for stories. There's so much. There's so much in them. Like I already said, they you know they limit the cast of characters and and they necessitate change by moving from place to place. Um, but yeah, for our first. I'd say the first three books in our series, we followed the same 
rough pattern where, you know, we, beginning of the story, you meet all the passengers, you get on the train, something happens, and there's a mystery to solve, and it needs to be solved before the train reaches the end of its journey. And these are often sleeper trains, so this is, takes place over several days and an interesting location and things like that. Um, and that's a great structure, and we have continued to, to be thrilled by it, but we then, we then found ourselves wanting to see if we could play with it in different ways. So in our fourth book, um, we sort of travel to Germany on lots of different trains and it's much more the structure of it is we're traveling to Germany to investigate something mysterious that has happened on a railway line. So the structure there is a lot more like the Hound of the Baskervilles where you start off in, in, in the UK and you're kind of going to a spooky place where there's a spooky train and a spooky railway line to investigate and it kind of it kind of builds and builds and builds into something different. Um, and Oh gosh, I can't give away what we do in our most recent book that we haven't published yet, but we've deliberately, you think it's going to be, they get on the train, there's a mystery to solve, and it needs to be solved by the end. And halfway through that book, we just to hit you with something that's completely going to change everything. So um, uh, it's, it's a really fun structure to adopt, but also to subvert in its own way. And that's often one of the first starting points we have is we look at the railway route that we've chosen, often because it's we often choose a railway route because there's an awful lot of interesting stuff there to talk about, whether that's culturally or geographically, um, or if it's the kind of train we've not sort of explored before. And then we look at the timetable and the route and basically use that as our structure. So in Kidnap on the California Comet, we knew that we wanted to have a kidnapping take place on this journey. So we looked at the manifest and we were like, where's this kidnap gonna happen? Where's this train gonna stop long enough for someone to get kidnapped? And, we, and I was like, oh, well, you know, when I took it, we stopped in um, Omaha for a bit. And oh, in Omaha, there's the Durham Museum. Maybe there can be an event in the Durham Museum. And then like you, then you kind of, um, you extrapolate from that. And you think, well, if the kidnapping happens there, you know, when are they going to find this clue? That maybe clue is going to happen in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. It's going to happen in Winter Park, the highest point on the Amtrak network. And so, yeah, you, you kind of, it's a gift in a way, because you use the timetable and you can, and you can use it for inspiration. And then, um, you find yourself on the opposite side of the coin being completely tied up in knots because you're like, oh, I need something to happen where someone gets off the train at a station, but there is no stop for three hours. What are we going to make happen in this story for three hours? We can't just pretend that there's a station there. That would be ludicrous. Um, uh, we do perhaps pay a little bit too much attention to detail in some of the, in some of the accuracy of the of the of the routes we choose, but I think that's part of the fun. Like we made a decision to set our stories in the real world, and so I think you have to take the take the realities of it warts and all. But yeah, it's uh, uh, often I think people find it easy to be creative when they have restrictions placed on them, and using sort of restrictions of the route and the timetable and the layout of the train. Is, um, is often quite freeing and gives us an awful lot of ideas that we have a lot of fun playing with. So this podcast mostly focuses on how trains are used in kids' books, but uh, something that I really wanted to touch on in this interview with you, because I just thought it was so interesting, is your nonfiction book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, one, I guess, why you decided to branch into nonfiction um, and what that book is about? So, yes, I writing fiction, about trains was not enough for me. I, I just loved researching the, the facts about the routes so much that I um, I uh, asked my publisher if I could do a non-fiction companion book and they very kindly said yes. So this book is basically a sort of um, 
fully illustrated hardcover extravaganza exploring 12 of the world's most amazing railway journeys. And it's fully illustrated throughout by this amazing illustrator called Sam Brewster. Um, and it's really about the joy and wonder of exploring the world by train. So I'm filling this book with an awful lot of facts and details about the trains themselves, the, the history of these railways, but also about the cultures and the people that these that these travel through. So um, for example, you know, where I talk about the Japanese Shinkansen, the um, uh, the Takedo Shinkansen from uh, Tokyo to Osaka, uh, which is interesting because it's a bullet train. It's the first high-speed train in the world, but it's also interesting because it follows the path of this ancient walking route that people have um, walked for centuries in Japan, and now it's the busiest transport corridor in the world. Um, it's interesting because in Japan, I get to talk about the ekiben that um, passengers eat on trains. So ekiben, if you aren't familiar, are these sort of bento boxes that are designed to be eaten whilst traveling on trains. But most stations in Japan have their very own unique ekiben boxes. So they will have different foods that are specialities sold at different stations all over Japan. And there are hundreds of stations all over Japan. And many of them take great pride in the travel food they produce. And um, I just love that. I love the fact of that. I love that that tells you how rooted culturally trains are to uh, Japan's sense of itself as a, as a nation. Um, and loads of amazing facts like that that you kind of unpick that you would discover as you explore the world by train. Um, it's a book about trains, but it's also a book about travel, a book about geography, a book about exploring the world. Because I think there were an awful lot of books about there about trains that are sort of about how trains work or the history of trains. But I really wanted to write something that captured what I was interested in about trains, which is where they go and why and how they let you discover the world. So um, if you know any uh, young or older explorers uh, who love trains, uh, I would definitely say that book is for them. All right, well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Before I let you go, can you just let us know where we can get these books at? Where are they most easily available? So uh, I want to say available from all good bookstores. If you're listening to this in the United States, um, I think only three of our books are available at the moment, but the fourth uh, will be coming out later this year. It's called Danger of Dead Man's Pass. Um, uh, you can get them almost anywhere good books are sold. Um, uh, and personally, as an author, I don't really mind where you get my books. Uh, if you want to get them from a library, if you want to get them online, if you want to listen to the fantastic audio books that have been recorded as well, that's another great option. Um, but yes, uh, any, any good bookstore, I hope we'll be able to supply you with at least the first three, hopefully very soon before. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real delight. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast produced by the California State Railroad Museum. For links to the books and websites that we talked about in this podcast, please see the podcast description. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you again next time.